From the studio of KPSU, Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. I'm Lily. I'm Evan. I'm Lindsay. As students of history, the work we do encompasses much more than simply memorizing dates and regurgitating names for tests. And so many jobs and opportunities for history students go beyond academia or teaching. One of my goals with this podcast is to showcase and recognize the work PSU history students do and illustrate how diverse this field really is. We must constantly expand our realm of scholarship and study, our skills and experiences to accommodate the competitiveness of the field we have chosen. From researching to writing to the diverse opportunities in museum work to graduate studies to administration, there may be more options than you think. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, we interview Maddie Mott, a PSU history undergraduate and development coordinator at Clackamas County Historical Society. She has also recently written an article for the history journal Willamette Valley Voices and has been accepted to a graduate program at Brown University. Today we'll discuss Maddie's diverse endeavors and hopefully provide insight and advice for history students hoping to expand their experience and skill set. Welcome Maddie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Second time. For new listeners, Maddie's been on the show before. We interviewed her and her colleague Corinne Roop about their work at the Clackamas County Historical Society. And you can find that episode on our SoundCloud or at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes. So Maddie, we know you've answered this in our previous episode, but for those listening, tell us why you chose to study history and why PSU. Well, um, I feel like this is true for a lot of PSU students, but I was born in Oregon, raised in Oregon, and when I was in high school, it came to the time where you applied for colleges, and I was in that weird position where... You're smart, but not smart enough to get enough money to afford going to private universities. Um, So PSU was kind of an afterthought for me. And it was like, all right, you got to make your decision. It's May 30th. Where are you going? I'm like, PSU. So, uh, So that's why I ended up here. And I came to study history. I wasn't, I didn't start off studying history. I actually was a biology major. And I realized that I'm not great at taking tests. And I was like, I can't do this for... I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. So I took my second year of college just kind of trying out different fields. And I was studying women's studies for quite some time. And then I remember when I was studying women's studies, I just became really interested in reading all the old stories about cool women who did cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I took this online, like super random European women's history course, and I kind of got hooked. And then from there, I started taking other history classes. And what got me interested in public history, which is kind of where I've firmly camped myself to be in, was I was interning at OMSI. And I was getting really interested in museum work and how my academic work can have an impact on the greater community. So from there, I kind of hooked up with Katie Barber. Then I ended up at the Clackamas County Historical Society. And then... It was just kind of all history. It's all history from there. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here, yeah. So I'd like to talk about the article you wrote because I found it super interesting. So for those listening, could you give us a brief summary of yeah. your work? Yeah. Um, so I wrote a paper. It is called The 1830-1833 Disease Epidemic of Oregon, A Closer Look. And I think this was 
interesting for me to write because I've never really branded myself to be the historian who writes about really obscure topics. But here I am (laughs) talking about a really obscure topic. So the paper got started. I was taking as most every I guess every history student does it. It's the 495, 595 class that you take. Mm-hmm. I was taking mine with Professor Tappan, and it was about the history of global health. And we needed to write a research paper. And I I took the class mainly because of Professor Tappan, not so much that I was really interested in health history. So then I'm kind of like, well, I need to pick a topic. So what so what what can I do? And we had just had a class about talking about malaria, and I remembered just kind of remembering that there was a panel at the museum I work at that was talking about this disease epidemic. I'm like, I think I mentioned malaria, but I'm going to go check. So it did. So basically, there is a disease epidemic that started in 1830 in the area surrounding Fort Vancouver and on on particularly on Savi Island. Um, Historically, it has been thought to be a malaria epidemic. But the research I did kind of revealed that I don't think it was a malaria epidemic. So to kind of set the stage, I guess, uh, in 1830, in July of 1830, the epidemic started. It recurred seasonally every July until 1833, and it lasted well into the fall. Um, It afflicted both indigenous people living in the area as well as uh, white resettlers who were in the fort, specifically at Fort Vancouver. It eventually, as time progressed, spread through the entire state of Oregon and started to go into California. And then after 1834, no recurrences of the disease occurred. And so there's really extent, there's quite a bit of primary source documentation from the time from and it's mostly from people like Peter Ogden and Dr. John McLaughlin who are writing about they called it an intermittent fever or they called it the fever and egg and the only documented symptoms we have of this epidemic was that it caused fever and it caused chills which are <laughs> super vague like that's just very common cold. symptoms <laughs> yeah it's just generic <laughs> symptoms like you're hot and then you're cold and so I guess what is most shocking about this epidemic and why I got really interested in it was historians of this topic using the primary source evidence that we have estimate that between 75 and 90 percent of Oregon's Native American population died as a result of this one epidemic. And that figure is shocking. Mm -hmm. Like no disease is that fatal. And the other thing that strikes me as really fishy about this topic is that a very, very negligible amount of white resettlers who had the same disease as the native people died so we're so what you know this is a history mystery like to contextualize this the medieval plague epidemic that everyone is so familiar with historians estimate that it killed 50 percent of europe's population so we have a case of an epidemic that is 25 to 40 percent more fatal than the plague which is in a shorter amount of time. In a short yeah. amount of time. Like this, the disease was only on the ground, I guess, for 18 months, you know? So that kind of got me interested in what the heck is going on here? Um, so I did a little bit of digging. And um, we, obviously now, because we're in 2017, we have a greater understanding of the pathology of malaria. And that was another thing that kind of sparked my interest is we had just learned about malaria. Malaria is not a fatal disease. So it doesn't make any sense as to why, you know, a supposed malaria epidemic is causing in some areas a 90% fatality rate, you know? So um, my, my thesis and kind of talking about, I guess I can talk a little bit about the actual, what malaria is basically. So we have a disorder or a disease epidemic that is 
devastating Oregon's indigenous population. And to talk a little bit more about uh, malaria, there's there's four types of malaria parasites that can cause a malarial infection in humans. Uh, the two most common are called Plasmodium falciparum and Plasmodium vivax. So, so the the reason why I'm kind of narrowed it down to P. falciparum and P. vivax, uh, as likely if this was a malaria epidemic as to the parasite that caused it, is because they're the most common. So, P. falciparum is a, a very fatal form of the malaria parasite. Um, most people who have a malarial infection and then die from it have P. falciparum malaria because it's a lot it's a lot more prevalent in tropical areas and it's also a lot more fatal and then the fatality rates of malaria can rise significantly if you have it in uh, conjunction with another disorder or if you're malnourished or anything like that. Um, P. vivax is an interesting type of malaria because it still causes the same symptoms and I mean the symptoms of malaria are pretty similar to the flu but just if left untreated they can become very severe the interesting thing about P. vivax is it is not fatal. Like, I, I think we read in the book that uh, by James L. A. Webb Jr. saying that, like, vivax malaria has a 1% to 2% fatality rate. But where the thing gets interesting is the only type of malaria parasite that could have survived in Oregon was P. vivax malaria. And it's for two reasons. One, the temperatures in Oregon simply are not warm enough for the P. falciparum's uh, reproductive cycle to finish. It takes about 10 to 14 days for a malaria parasite to reproduce, and it has to be above 67 degrees, which even in July, like Oregon, can get pretty cold. The other thing was uh, our primary source evidence indicates that um, people who had the epidemic one year could get it again the following year and die from it. If you have a P. falciparum malarial infection, you're immune to it period. Like, you will not get it again. P. vivax malaria actually has a stage, a dormant stage, where it can live in your liver and then re-pop up, which makes me lead, for those two reasons, temperature and the fact that P. vivax can reoccur in people, made me think that it was, if this was a malaria epidemic in Oregon, that it would have been caused by P. vivax. But that doesn't make sense, because P. vivax is not fatal. So, um, and you know, there's been a, there's a few historians who offer up explanations for the high mortality high mortality rates. There's one historian who's been writing about this topic since the 70s who claims that the way um, indigenous people would treat the malarial infections uh, would cause the rates to go up. And I think it's just so deeply problematic the way he talks about it. So I, I don't think that's true. Um, another historian was talking about how this might be an example of a virgin soil epidemic, which is an epidemic that occurs in a group of people, and it's usually people indigenous to the area, who haven't been exposed to these types of infections before, that the infection can have much higher fatality rates. But Professor Tapman actually put me in touch with Dr. Webb, who is one of the historians who wrote like the seminal book on malarial history, and he's saying the absolute maximum fatality rate that any severely untreated malarial epidemic can have is 5%. It's not fatal. Like, there's absolutely no way that it could have been malaria. It's just simply not fatal enough. And even if people, record keepers of the time, grossly overestimated uh, these figures, I mean, it's still, we're, there's, a huge, there's a huge difference. So I guess my paper talks about the two sides of the story. We have historical evidence conflicting with scientific knowledge of a topic. And when we have a big conflict like that, I think that, we, it, we can't assume that it was something, you know, 
we have to take both of those into account. And then calling for historians to look beyond uh, malaria as the cause for the epidemic. So that was kind of my paper. So the general consensus is uh, amongst historians is that this was most likely a malaria outbreak. Yes. So, yeah. And another thing that I thought was really interesting was there seems, from my research, and I could be wrong, and I this might sound like a big claim, but there seems to be almost no consultation with science, with the scientific evidence of what we know about malaria and the in the accounts I have read about this disease. Like there's a there's a number of people who talk about it and it just seems to be kind of common knowledge that hasn't really been questioned. So I think it's so my paper kind of retorted at that and was more critical of it. So yes, the consensus is that and I think I may have made a couple of waves saying that it, it and I don't want to say 100% it wasn't malaria, but it is highly improbable at this point that, based on what we know about malaria today, that this could have been a malaria epidemic. It at least needs a harder It needs argument. a harder look. And the other thing is, too, I don't know if we'll ever know what it was. And I think this might be a great history mystery because, you know, I can tell you what it's not. You know, it's not it wasn't meningitis or smallpox or measles because there was no documented physical symptoms that like are obvious to the eye. Um, it wasn't typhus or cholera because there weren't any documented gastrointestinal systems. There weren't enough animal vectors around for it to be an epidemic of the plague. Our symptoms are so big. I mean, we have two symptoms to work off of. And maybe the flu. I mean, that's obviously as evidenced by the 1914 flu pandemic. Like, that can be fatal. But we'll just never know. Um, and we don't, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll ever be able to figure out what it was. As well, which is a status and not a very satisfying conclusion. <laughs> How likely would it be to test um, bodies? Well, that's the other thing. Uh, not only is it super inappropriate to dig up an indigenous burial ground, but the other thing is there was a there was a account from Ogden. So in 1830, um, he wrote in his journal that there was, so there was a, uh, two tribes living on Savi Island of about 60 families. He said by within three months of the epidemic starting in July of 1830, they were all dead. So, and I'm, it's kind of unclear what the next procedure was, but some, but people from Fort Vancouver went to Savi Island and either A, burnt the whole island or B, gathered up the bodies and burnt them. So even if, I mean, we don't have any evidence, you know, so I don't know if we'll ever be able to conclusively say this was something. And I can only think of one other historian that very briefly mentioned it as a mysterious epidemic, but everyone's been writing about it as a malaria epidemic. What kind of implications does that have with misrepresenting it in that way? It's I keep referring to it as a malaria epidemic because that's what people know it as. And mm -hmm. I think that sometimes people think I'm talking about something different if it isn't. Yeah. But I think keeping referring to it as malaria epidemic is just kind of saying that history is a once and done field and it's not we don't need to go back and revise it and I mean this has been this happened in 1830 you know it's been in our historical knowledge for more than 100 years good proof that this is just one instance of where we're probably wrong yeah what we know and I think that's a really good example of there are other things we should relook at too absolutely I mm -hmm. think we're due I think history is due for a revision <laughs> I mean we've been proven wrong before where there's probably mm -hmm. things that we have different accounts of and I mean there's a whole nother story to yeah. the story studying disease and epidemics what are some of the challenges of studying that like you said yeah. you know two symptoms mm -hmm. um, two what kind symptoms. of sources are you looking um, at what's available it's 
Well, especially too, I think um, like if you're studying the plague, you know, the mm-hmm. big plague epidemic, you're going to have a lot more resources. The, because this was such a, there's not, there's not a lot. There's one, there's one guy who has taken it upon himself, I guess, to be the historian of Oregon disease epidemics. And a lot of my resource research was coming from him, which was challenging for me because I think that he's he's writing from a place of privilege and I don't think he often consults with the indigenous tribes that these disease epidemics affected the most. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the thing I took the most issue with was how he, when he was writing about why the fatality rates of this epidemic could be so high. And he kept talking about there was a practice that tribes in this area would do, and it's called sweat bathing. So the idea was, you know, if you're hot, then you go into a cool place. And if you're cold, then you go into a hot place. Like the logic definitely checks out. And it's a practice that they've been doing for decades, you know, hundreds of years. Um, And the way he would write about it was very victim blaming. Like he was like, because they could not take care of themselves was the reason that they died. And the the other thing he didn't mention was indigenous people would go to Fort Vancouver because the fort had quinine, which is the cure for malaria. And they're actively denying quinine and any sort of treatment by the fort. I really took issue with the way he was writing about that. So that was difficult because he was really my only source of information about this. Um, so it was definitely, you had to read everything he was writing about with a grain of salt. So that was, that was challenging. Um, I mean, it's, this only happened for three years. So it's not like John McLaughlin sat down and was like, I'm going to write about a really great account. That's very thorough about Mm -hmm. this one disease epidemic. You know, it was just kind of offhanded sentence. Like this fever killed this many people today. So that was hard to work with too. Um, I think the lack of material surrounding this disease was definitely the hardest thing for me to work with. And then just kind of being, you have to be very conscious about what you're consuming and not take everything as fact. Um, so I guess that was the challenge for writing this particular paper. What was the most surprising thing you learned while okay. this research? <laughs> I thought about this. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the, so the reason we had this text panel in the museum at the first in the first place was we had an old anchor from the boat that apparently brought malaria to the area and i've (laughs) dr tapping can attest that i've talked to her a lot i was so hung up on this fact i'm like how do we know it was this one particular boat that had the one guy that brought malaria (laughs) to the area how do we know it's this is its anchor like what so the most popular theory of how malaria got to oregon was that there was a boat called the Ohihi that had the one guy uh, that traded with indigenous people in the area and then infected them with malaria. What I found that was super interesting, and unfortunately in my paper this had to be relegated to a footnote, which just killed me. There was one historian who in the 1930s suggested that it's not, it's unlikely that the Ohihi was the boat for a couple of reasons. There were a number of boats docked at Fort Vancouver at the same time, probably six, he said like six or seven. So why did we pick this one in particular? And he said it was because the Ohihi was an American fur trading ship in British fur trading territory. So they're direct competitors. So it's very likely that people started a rumor that the Ohihi was a disease bringing ship in order to drive them out of the area. And it's just kind of been common, just accepted as historical fact because so many people said it. So I think that was interesting. And that just reveals that you have to be very careful about what you read as a historian. 
because you can't just obviously it was on a text panel at my museum the one historian who wrote a lot about this claims that the he brought it so it's just being like be careful about what you read always be skeptical and then be yeah be thorough in your research because it could be just a rumor but yeah it was it was definitely a really fun paper to write that was i think this is one of my proudest moments as a historian i agree i find it really interesting too that people will sometimes historians will accept written primary sources without questions but not like oral traditions or something yeah it's really interesting to see those being questioned absolutely it's just like valuing western knowledge mm-hmm. overall exactly. which is problematic I and think. Not, not just sources too you need to be able to historians today need to be able to back up the written evidence with physical evidence if mm-hmm. possible yeah. and i think in this situation the best evidence would be physical because the the written record isn't quite as detailed as it could be mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely and i think this is a good um call to action to be more interdisciplinary within our work because um you know i think the basis for me being able to say i don't think this was a malaria epidemic was a very thorough reading of malaria in science textbooks so i think uh and that's the other thing i don't think a lot of historians who have written about this disease in the past have done Mm -hmm. so i think which is problematic yeah so writing and research is something most history students are familiar with but often our papers just stop with our professors so how did you come across this opportunity to write for willamette valley voices yeah so i luckily professor tappan likes me a lot (laughs) um and it was um gosh it was probably the last week of fall term and she had gotten an email from Bob Reinhardt, who is the executive director at the Willamette Heritage Center, who publishes Willamette Valley Voices. And he had extended the call for proposals um, for the spring issue of Willamette Valley Voices, which talks about nature and communities and how the physical world had an effect on Oregon's history and the people who lived here. And she was kind of like, hey, this might be cool. And something Willamette Valley Voices does, which I think is really cool, is that they want undergrads to write and they want to have an outlet for undergrads, grad students, as well as like not academic, not professors, but just kind of local historians, people with a really great interest in history, but no a PhD and having an outlet for them to present their work, which is pretty cool. Um, so my paper fit in really nicely. And luckily, Bob Reinhardt actually did his um academic history work in disease epidemics. I kind of had it in there. Uh, I submitted it to them and it was accepted. And then it went through uh, the editing process. Um, But yeah, it was all, uh, I don't think I would have submitted it had it not been for Professor Tappan encouraging me to, because that's, I mean, that's not what I do. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not a classic academic historian who writes stuff. So I would not have done it if it had not been her for her urging to. So. so as we mentioned in the beginning, you have recently been accepted to Brown University. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the program you have been accepted to? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, it's the Public Humanities Program. Um, so kind of in the same vein as public history. But what's kind of cool about public humanities is that they've expanded it to include other disciplines. Um, I know at Brown it's usually quite a good mix of people who come from a history background, but also quite a few people who are interested in doing work around art in a a public setting. Um, It's a really cool program because it really values, um, it basically lets you create your own master's degree, which is kind of cool. So there's um, 
you there's only two required classes I have to take and then from there I can design my own program using any of taking any of the grad schools offered at Brown and if there isn't at Brown that I can take I can just go take them at Harvard because I get all the glory and none of the work to get into Harvard. Um, so they really value letting you have the freedom to study what you want. But the other thing is, too, you definitely have to go in with like a clear path of what you want to have. So that's my program. Um, it's it's really cool. That sounds awesome. So what do you want to do with that? So I, in my uh, personal statements and other materials I sent off to grad school I so I was very inspired when I was thinking about my life and what I want to do with it like I was definitely my time working at the Clackamas County Historical Society has definitely made an impression on me um and I definitely uh, some people know I write grants I think that's common knowledge for most people who are involved with the history department but maybe not so for everyone else um and that's something that's a line of work I want to continue on and I think I have a real talent for it and it's just kind of fitting out, figuring out where my talent best meets up um, with history. Um, so I kind of, what I want to do is I want to continue working with small museums who are struggling in the way CCHS is struggling. You know, we don't have a long-term plan. We're not financially viable. Our community is losing interest in us. And these are all problems that I think small museums need to solve. And the other thing I think, too, small museums... Um, make up the majority of the museum field, but I think they get none of the attention that larger museums like The Field or any of the Smithsonian institutions or big art museums get. But the other thing is, like, small museums are likely, I think, the most accessible cultural experience around, both financially and geographically. Like, I always say, like, think about someone who lives in John Day, Oregon. A working class family in John Day, Oregon is not going to drive to downtown Portland to spend upwards of $80 at the Oregon Historical Society and then drive back home. That's not a reality for a lot of people. But, and I grew up in rural Oregon with two museums nearby that were $5 to get in there five minutes from my home. So why are we devaluing these smaller institutions and placing so much value on institutions that aren't going to be accessible to anyone who's not living in downtown Portland, you know? So what I wanted to do is I want to create my own consulting firm that is specifically designed for working with small museums and kind of getting them up to speed. Because, I mean, CCHS suffers from a lot of problems like we're, our, our scholarship's out of date and we don't know how to fundraise. So, and I know that's going to be a reality for a lot of museums. And I kind of want to take the things I like doing, which is fundraising, vision planning, big picture things, uh, and taking that to a smaller level. So that's what I want to do. That's awesome. That's great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> um, and at Brown, you know, one of the really cool things that they do is, and I could talk about this later with my other grad, my other grad school experiences, which I know you likely asked me about, was they don't just make themselves out to be an exhibit school where you learn how to make exhibits and that's it. So, you know, I'm really interested in learning how to manage a museum and I'm really interested in learning how can I connect with a community that doesn't want to or that isn't engaged with my museum right now, specifically looking at suburban and more rural communities. Um, I want to learn more about different avenues in which we can um, interact with our community and I was offered a digital humanities fellowship at Brown too so I'll get to get dabble in that as well but you know I'm really 
committed to making sure small museums just aren't left out in the cold. While I think the museum field is making really big strides towards inclusivity and interactivity and accessibility, but it's only happening on a big level. And I want to make sure that those best practices are being translated into a level or into a small, something a small museum can do, you know? So and I think that Brown was going to equip me with the tools I need as well. So, yeah. So, um, we also want to know, what is your experience with applying to grad school, and what advice would you have for undergrads who want to go to grad school? Yeah. Um, okay. So, I, my experience, so just to preface this, I applied to four museum studies programs. Um, I made the effort I made the decision early on that I did not want an MA in history, and I can touch on that a little bit later when I give my advice. But um, uh, it was was an interesting experience that definitely threw me for a couple of loops kind of a few months ago. Um, You know, I wrote all my stuff, and I felt really good about it, and I took my GRE, which is the worst experience ever in the world. (laughs) I'm dreading it. Um, Oh, I know. (laughs) It's it's so, gosh. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's the pits it's it starts studying now <laughs> oh, it's, start studying now it's the worst it's just so bad i i was so excited to just so do so average i just barely i was like yes i am just perfectly average um and it was um my experience so i guess to share my anecdotes i went in to applying for grad school knowing that i wanted to go to one school and it was the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I was just dead set. I just knew I was going to go to UIC. I thought that they were really cool. They really have social justice at the root of their program. And I was just convinced this is where I'm going to go. And I'm like, whatever. I don't care about any other schools except UIC. So I get into UIC. I'm over the moon. I go to UIC. And it's awful. Like, oh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, um, Chicago's a cool city. Like, it definitely is. And the museums were great. But the problem I had, and I kind of started to realize this about other museum studies programs, the people at UIC didn't have any museum experience. I would say probably three quarters of them had never worked in a museum or even volunteered, which was shocking to me. So, I, yeah, especially the Chicago Historical Society being such a big influence in the country. Also, best museum ever. Oh, that was amazing. Well, so I had an interview. There's like one program director. I had interviewed. See, the other weird thing about UIC was my interview was with the program coordinator, which is I sure is normal. But during my interview, he's like, well, I think I have a pretty good sense of like what you want to do based on your uh, writing samples. I'm like, okay, cool. So we were just kind of talking about Portland and stuff. So I didn't really have an interview either. And they weren't teaching practical skills. Like, they okay, they had a collections class. And so I'm like, okay, that's going to be fun to learn about. You'll learn about like what temperature to keep stuff at and like what kind of tissue paper you use and it was more about like the memory and theory of collecting which is cool but not what I was expecting at all mm-hmm. and they don't really encourage you to take any sort of nonprofit management classes which I'm kind of like Ugh, that's definitely what I want to do so maybe not and definitely like <laughs> I was talking to some students and they were shocked that museums have funding problems I'm like oh no one knows so that was devastating and I had a few breakdowns in Chicago because I'm like this is the school I was going to go to I thought that they were going to give me money but I don't want to go here so so then I had kind of this um breakdown moment where and this is I guess this is my partially my fault but a lot of museum studies curriculums are very museum 101 you know every department has a course how to make exhibits 101 how to grant write 101 you know all that kind of stuff and I don't need that (laughs) 
Like, I, I've been working in this field for almost two years. I don't need the introductory course. Um, so that was definitely uh, the reason why I chose to go to Brown over, I guess the decision came down to the Cooperstown Graduate Program, which is a really, really well-known museum program. And Brown was the between the two schools. And I ultimately chose Brown because, you know, I've, I've had my fingers in a lot of pies and I, I know the basics already. And I don't want to go to grad school and take out student loans to just reaffirm that I'm good at stuff. You know, I want to challenge myself and learn some new stuff. So ultimately, that's in the end why I chose to go to Brown instead of Cooperstown. Advice I would have for undergrads, and I Lily's heard this spiel before. Yes. Um, I think the most important thing I'm going to say is right now, you know, if you're an undergrad in history, and you want to go to grad school, you're kind of at a crossroads. And there's two paths you can go down. And you can choose to go down, you know, the museum studies path. Or you can kind of choose to go down that traditional MA in history and the traditional MA in public history path. And, you know, you need to do a little bit of soul searching and decide who you want to be and what kind of impact you want your work to have. Because, you know, if you go down this MA in history or public history path, a lot of your work is going to be in academia. And while you will be able to, you know, dabble in projects if you so choose, a lot of the impact that your work does is just going to be on the academy and people who have the privilege of going to college. I chose the museum studies path is because I have a skill that I think a lot of small museums need. And I really want to have an impact on communities that have been neglected in cultural experiences before. And I wanted to reach out to them and I wanted my work to affect their lives uh, as well. So that's why I chose to go. I guess it would be considered a non-traditional path for an academic historian. You know, a lot of people aren't thinking about the administrative skills they need to know how to bring their work to the public. So that's that's the biggest piece I'd recommend is think about what you want to do and how you want to affect your community and the world. And then from there, choose your path. It's true. I mean, traditional historians, you're going to be published in academic journals and you're going to be published in Routledge Readers. And that's that's not accessible to a lot of people. So there's that. And the other thing is, you know, I think one of the reasons... I was successful in my grad school applications was I am a good writer and a lot of historians are, but if you can clearly and convincingly communicate what you want to do and why you are the most special person to ever walk this planet uh, in your personal statements, I think that you will be very successful. So I guess that's my advice. Also have some good letters of rec. That's another thing. (laughs) Yes, You need some strong ones. Uh, so do that. Become friends with professors and do stuff as well. Thank you. And then also on a similar vein, what advice would you have for history students who like want to get into extracurricular work while they're in school, such as employment or writing for journals, things like that? So I got my start in extracurriculars. I like that we call it that. Um, <laughs> because I, when I decided I wanted to be a history major, I knew that it was a really competitive field and the job outlook was bleak. And I said, all right, I'm going to do everything in my power to one, get into grad school two, not graduate and not be able to find a job. You know, like I was just, I just knew that was what I had to do. So for my OMSI internship, 
that was something I just kind of pursued on my own. I had a friend email me the internship posting, and I just kind of went for it, lied a little bit about my experience, and then got in, so that was fine. <laughs> I guess, you know, the reason I ended up at Clackamas County Historical Society was because of Katie Barber. So the thing is, like, if you can find a professor, and I would recommend Katie Barber, but I, and you know, Catherine McNoor so is I. another person who has knows a lot of uh, opportunities outside the department, and obviously Professor Tappan was the one who pushed me to publish a journal, and Professor Garrison also is has his pulse on what's going on in the history field out here. So getting in contact with um, a professor who is aware of extracurricular opportunities. Um, internships are invaluable, and I think one of the really great benefits of PSU is we have the ability to work while to do work while we're in college. You know, we're in the middle of a city. It's not hard for us to get other places. I think the reason I got into Brown and I got funding was because. I didn't just do a three-month summer internship. I interned for a year while I was still in school. And we have the opportunity to do that, so I would definitely take advantage of that. Even volunteering, you know, anything you can do. And I think that's true for both public historians as well as just traditional historians. You know, I know there are some people, some history majors, who, like, snub their nose to the to public history, but, you know, the thing about grad school is it's really competitive, and you want to not only get in, but find some sort of funding, you know, to prove that you're the best that in your, at what you do. And I think being able to say, I have all of these, you know, I have an internship, I have a publication, I have another internship, I have a job is what put me, set me way over the edge for a lot of other applicants. And, you know, it took me five years to finish undergrad, but look at the experience I have to supplement my resume. So don't be afraid to take your time and getting your degree. Don't be afraid to just go in and sit in someone's office and say, hey, what can I do, you know, to you know, supplement your field? And I know, Lindsay, you were kind of talking about that was something you wished you had. Right. I'm in my second year graduate program here. I've mentioned that before on the show. But with my experience in my undergraduate degree, I didn't do internships. I didn't really have a, a solid advisor. I had a good experience as far as the, uh, the academy and the academic side was concerned, where I did gain quite a few skills. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here as mm -hmm. a graduate student. But at the same time, I didn't have, I didn't build the experience that I felt would have helped me get a job. I didn't get a job, and I have yet to be able to, until recently, to work in my field. So, as from my experience, I totally, totally agree with Maddie that you really just have to take opportunities as they come to you and find a solid advisor or multiple mm -hmm. advisors. And luckily here at PSU, there are quite a few people that do have their finger on the pulse of the, of the historical work that you could do within the area. And they are constantly sending out emails or putting up flyers, talking about things that you can do while you're in school or even if you do want to do that uh, an internship over uh the summer or mm -hmm. something like that they do provide opportunities like that as well so i definitely recommend anybody who's interested in doing graduate school work or working in the field post-graduation that they really need to take advantage of whatever internships volunteerships are available in the city and we are very fortunate to be lucky uh, located in a, a metropolitan area that supports history and public history as well. I'm going to add one more thing. I have, I, 
I said this on the last episode, and I said this in the careers in public history class, and I think Katie Barber is tired of me hearing me say it. Take a grant writing class, please. Oh, my gosh. I think the other thing (laughs) that set me apart, and I will say, when I went to UIC, there were 30 students there, and I was the only one who had had any experience in fundraising at all. So the other – and I I think, I really do, that my experience with grant writing – put me leaps and bounds above everyone else and you know at brown i was talking with the program director and they kind of do a weird i'm going to put this in air quotes of their own version of affirmative action where they pick people from different disciplines you know to represent the different departments of you know a museum so being able to have that administrative experience, and I'm kind of an, an administrative public historian, you know, oh, that set me apart so much. Mm-hmm. I And, you know, obviously I've, I've worked as a grant writer for a year. Everything I did at OMSI was related to grant writing. You know, just even taking a grant writing class, even just if you already work somewhere, ask if you can see the grants. I learned a lot about grant writing just through osmosis at OMSI, like just kind of being in that environment seeing people do work asking about what they were doing that that set me up for success I think so yeah and even in academia I feel like grant writing is an important skill because your projects need money absolutely and I think it's a for historians I mean all we do is research and write and what's grant writing research and writing so it's a very (laughs) um practical application of the skills we already know and the other thing too is you know I know a lot of people say historians are great for jobs because we know how to research and write. But then being able to say, because I know how to research and write, I can fundraise money for projects is even more impressive on a resume than just saying you're a history major. So I would very, very, very highly recommend getting some sort of experience while you're still an undergrad. Even if you're in grad school now, I mean, you're not going to you're not going to encounter history without grant writing. You know, those are never two things that can be separated. So yeah there's not a magical pot of gold sitting there (laughs) waiting to fund your research you you have a great idea you could your research could change lives yeah but you can't (laughs) do it if you can't eat while you're researching and writing (laughs) yeah you got to be able to live and 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 uh, it's 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 a challenge and you want to be able to provide something for any kind of institution you happen to try to work for Mm -hmm. to like incentive for them to hire you incentive for, for them to give you raises to keep you it, history is being historian it's just like being any other kind of professional mm-hmm. it's it's not all flowers and rainbows you know <laughs> sitting in a musky library doing research it's not all that all the yeah. time mm-hmm. no not at all and I, I think that at least for the four of us here today we are more more interested in in being more active with our historical research and and reaching more people in the public because we tend to be public history minded we're definitely not the uh the dusty sometimes we are sometimes (laughs) even though it's everybody gets and that's the fun part the fun part's being the dusty historian but um (laughs) but yeah i mean we we can't always be such a great description yeah we need to think about how we can i think when Corinne was on, Corinne and I were on last time, she said it so perfectly. She's like, I can have all the good ideas in the world, but if I can't get money for them, then they're just, that's just what they are, ideas. You know, if you if you have a great idea that you want to implement, I mean, you have to have money, and it's usually going to be through grants. Unless Arlene Schnitzer flies down from the heavens <laughs> and gives you a million dollars. 
So, so do that, please, guys. I want, I want people, I want people to be set up for success. But I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like this is a hard field mm-hmm. to to break into Very and to to be in. So anything you can do to just elbow other people out of the way, just be like, <laughs> yeah. I'm the greatest. You know, um, please do it because otherwise you're going to be sad. I've seen too many hearts get broken where they just kind of cruised on through undergrad and didn't get into grad school, and it was yeah. devastating for them. But it's like. I'm really sorry, but... And, yeah, I got lucky. I believe I I did an internship at the Atlanta History Center. I did this post-graduation. After I realized I wasn't going to be hired anywhere for anything, I got very, very lucky that they let me... Uh, they accepted me into their internship program, and I interned there for a year, which I know helped me get into graduate school. Oh, yeah. And I had to do that all on my own, just kind of find the internship, do the application, make myself sound like a million bucks. And then I just so happened to meet one of the best people uh, working in, in museums that I've met so far. And she was working at the Atlanta History Center as the collections manager, and she was very helpful, and she showed me the way and allowed me to work there for a year until I moved out here. So, And I just want to say that I know like a lot of people are worried about doing an internship because they're like, school, an internship, but no money. But there, are, but when you're in a city, there are paid internships. Mm-hmm. You need to ask, and it can be harder to find. Yeah. But they and do museums, exist. all the museums in Portland that I've found have part-time jobs that are for entry level and that's a great way to get your foot Mm. in the door even if it's not a history museum the experience is still so valuable yeah I will say though I have been working almost full-time my last three years at undergrad because I yeah I (laughs) uh I did unpaid internships both in OMSI and at CCHS and I also needed to eat Mm -hmm. um you know but I didn't sleep a lot, but you don't get into brown by sleeping. Mm-hmm. And I, you, it's going to be hard. And I know I've talked to people who I'm like, well, you need to intern for free. And they're like, but I don't want to. That's I don't want to do it for free. I'm like, bummer. You know, I'm mm-hmm. really sorry that the labor force right now is awful. And I, I, I personally have a, an issue with unpaid internships, especially, mm-hmm. you know, if a museum can afford it. It's just, just devaluing of human labor. But, I mean, you if you want to succeed, you will make the sacrifices that you need to do and i'm sorry if you're socialized to sacrifice (laughs) but you know what and i would like do we have one anyways unpaid internships are where you're going to museums are going to let you do the things yes that you want to learn um paid jobs will typically especially entry level will be visitor services Mm -hmm. however an unpaid internship you might actually get to work in collections or in exhibits and that's the work you want to do yeah. So it just depends on what you want, definitely. Because I, I had to work full time while I did my internship. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I'm working five days, and the other two days I'm at the museum. Yep. <laughs> but it was worth it, and it's not gonna last forever, people. <laughs> You're you, gonna be okay. You have to have a few sixty hours. Does weeks. it really matter if you graduate magna cum laude or cum laude now? Come on, you have the you have the hey. internship experience. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right, guys. I think. We're so close to running out of time. Thank you for coming on the show again. Thank you for letting me have an outlet to ramble. (laughs) Um, As a final note, I think we've said this a lot, but I encourage all history students at PSU to look for opportunities to get your work out there, whether that's publication for journals, conferences, or presentations, and also consider pursuing field-related experience. Apply to intern work or volunteer at your local history societies and museums. You'll learn so much through these experiences and meet incredible people like Maddie. (laughs) 
Oh, <laughs> gosh. Um. Beyond Footnotes is produced by the students of PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or soundcloud.com. And don't forget to share. Tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. Signing off, I'm Lily. I'm Evan. I'm Lindsay. <laughs> I'm Maddie. <laughs> <laughs>